0: Welcome to the Robert Lewis Sermons Podcast, an archive of Robert Lewis's sermons while at Fellowship Bible Church in Little Rock, Arkansas. The following podcast is one of Robert's original messages to men on manhood, found here under the series heading Authentic Manhood. As you listen to it, we hope it will give you both personal encouragement and spiritual inspiration to live better as a man. Well, good morning, men. You know, I thought because of the religious diversity that uh, represents... Uh, Men's fraternity here in the room. I thought it would be good this morning with all the different churches that are represented here uh, today that uh, we would start today's session poking a little fun at ourselves. So here's the question How many Christians does it take to change a light bulb? If you're a Baptist, at least 15. One to change the light bulb and three committees to approve the change and decide who brings the potato salad. If you're a charismatic, only one. And miraculously, your hands are already in the air. If you're a Presbyterian, thank you. If you're a Presbyterian, none lights will go on and off at their own predestined, preordained times. <laughs> if you're a Pentecostal 10, one to change the bulb while nine pray fast and rebuke the spirit of darkness If you're a Catholic, none Catholics prefer candles anyway. If you're an Episcopalian, three. One to call the electrician, one to mix the drinks, and one to talk about how much better the old bulb was. (laughs) If you're a Methodist, undetermined, That's because whether your light bulb is bright, dull, or burned out, you are loved. (laughs) If you're a Lutheran, none. Lutherans don't believe in change. (laughs) If you're Church of Christ, none. They do not use light bulbs because there's no evidence of their use in the New Testament. (laughs) And for the rest of us, if you're Unitarian... You choose not to make a statement either in favor or against the need for a light bulb. However, if in your own journey you have found that light bulbs work for you, fine. You are invited to write a poem or compose a modern dance about your bulb (laughs) (laughs) for next Sunday's service, during which we will explore a number of light bulb traditions including incandescent, fluorescent, three-way, long life, and tinted, all of which are equally valid paths to luminescence. (laughs) Well, that's to help us get started here this morning. And as uh, has already been mentioned today, what we're going to be doing is going back, going back to the very beginning and looking and exploring in those original manuscripts, what I call the original blueprints of how life began on our planet. And that's because Genesis is the beginning of it all. It's done so, though, in a very simple story. In a very simple way, it shows us how we began, what we began as, what we began for, and what happened to us along the way. Last week, we were looking at Genesis 1 and 2, and we learned that man as male was originally created with a very unique calling over his life. We discovered, and this is what I want you to listen closely with, we discovered last week as we finished up that a man's social and spiritual DNA was coded by God with leadership. That's very, very important that you hear that. The spiritual genetic code of a man as male at the very core and at the very center of his being what is put there is a calling to leadership and this leadership, I believe is the core, the center place of helping us now construct a definition of manhood, which we'll do in the next couple of weeks. But I also need to stop at this point and issue a word of caution about a man's leadership because it's important for you men, as you hear me talk about that from the book of Genesis, that you don't get ahead of me in the research. Don't crown yourself king just yet, okay, guys. And don't go back to your homes, those of you who are married, and then say, "Robert said I'm numero uno, <laughs> the big cheese, the head honcho, and the presidente," because there's going to be trouble there if you do. <laughs> One man did that years ago. He and his wife went to a marriage seminar where the speaker way overinflated this concept of male leadership. But the husband just ate it up. And so as they were driving home along the way, the husband kept talking to his wife saying, man, I love what that guy said. He said, that's the way it ought to be. From now on, I'm going to be the boss around here. And he went on and on and on talking about it. His wife said nothing all the way back home, but you could tell how she felt about it because her face was red hot. So when they got there, she stormed into the house and he stormed in right after. And he said, you stop right there and straighten up. Didn't you hear what he said? From now on, this is the way it's gonna be. I'm running the show here. at that point, he didn't see his wife for three weeks. And then after that, he could see her just a little bit out of one eye. (laughs) You guys got the picture now? Now I know, now I know that in our world today, even mentioning male with leadership terrifies the whole second half of the gender world. And that's why it's not spoken about, oftentimes not spoken about in society with our sameness rhetoric, not talked about in the church, oftentimes for fear, but we're talking about it. Because at the center of a man's existence, his createdness, at least in the original form, was the word leadership. But one thing I want you to do, guys, is as we start here, let me make one thing perfectly clear. It's in your notes, and I want to put it on the screen, so there'll be no mistake about it. Male domination is a personal moral failure, not a teaching of the Bible. We're going to talk about leadership, but there's a great difference between leadership and male domination. That's not the leadership of the Bible. That's a personal moral failure. And dominant men are in reality. Men who dominate women are in reality. Look at me. They are in reality boys trying to act like real men. And that's not what we're addressing here when we talk about the word leadership, not dominance, leadership. And there's a great difference between the two. So you star that and underline that statement there in your notes. Genesis does tell us that man as he was originally created was laced up with leadership, but it was a leadership that was noble. It was a leadership that was honorable. And it was a leadership, at least as a woman was concerned, gratifying, not terrifying. So with that said, let's continue our research by returning back to Genesis. And what we want to see is what Genesis 2, because we, we, we left Genesis 2 but didn't complete it, what Genesis 2 says about manhood. Now, we have already seen a few glimpses into man. First of all, we saw that Adam was created first, and that that wasn't an accident, And it wasn't that God made a mistake and so he tried a second time either by creating the woman just to do a little better job. No, Adam was created first on purpose. It was to make a statement both to him and to the woman who would come after him. We also saw that it was to Adam that God gave his word originally, his spoken word, his commands. And through Adam, those commands were to be relayed to his wife as he helped lead her and and foster a direction for both of them in this new experience that they were to have together on planet Earth. When she came into existence, she was called Helper. And the word Helper was not a put down kind of term. By the way, Helper is only used three other times in the scripture, referring to three other persons along with the woman. Three very distinguished persons, by the way God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit, and woman. Those are man's helpers, so it's a pretty lofty and exalted title, but she was given that title to help position her in relationship to the calling that a man had over his life, and she was there to complement that calling and, and in that find a calling of her own rather than compete with his calling, so she's called helper, and we learned all of that and other things last week. In addition to those observations, let me make two other observations out of the book of Genesis in chapter two. Here's the first one. I want you to notice, if we were reading this together as we opened our Bibles, we would also notice that after Eve is created, the man names his helper. Genesis 2:23 says it this way. He says, "And the man said, "The woman has been created. This is now bone of my bone and flesh of my flesh." She shall be called woman because she was taken out of man. So she comes into existence. And as we read this very simple, primitive, primal story, as he looks at her, he names her. Now he's named the animals earlier, but now he names her. He's called man, Ish. He names her Isha, woman. And God allows him to do that. And that's the point. God allows him to name her. God stands back and says, you take the initiative and you name the woman, and he does. And in doing that, it says something to Adam and to the woman about both of them. It whispers something about their relationship and it whispers something in particular about his leadership in the relationship. Now, if you took that primal moment and raced down thousands of years to 2000 and three, where we are today, the 21st century, you would find that in our own way, we follow this same pattern, at least in most marriages. If we were doing a marriage ceremony here today and the man and the woman were standing in front of me and you were the audience, at the end of the ceremony, I say, you know, I now pronounce you husband and wife and I'll say, Pete, you can kiss your bride. And they kiss and then I have them turn and face the audience and I say, Ladies and gentlemen, it's my privilege to present to you Mr. and Mrs. Pete Carpenter. And he's named her. In this ceremony, the man named her. Why do we give the couple his name? Now, most of us, that's just a mindless custom, but no, 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 no. All customs have deep social significance. In that moment, we are whispering in that pronouncement something about how they will dance the rest of their life and who will initiate and who will protect and who will provide and who will lead and who will help in all that. We're saying that very thing at that moment It is putting on his shoulders, the responsibility of a new and noble leadership in this new social organization called the family. That's what's happening. By the way, that's also why in the social revolution that we've experienced over the last 30 and 40 years, that in many ceremonies today, the woman chooses to keep her own name, or that the couple decide in advance that when they marry, it's not going to be Mr. and Mrs. Pete Carpenter, but it's going to be Mr. and Mrs. Pete Carpenter slash Wilson. And that makes a social statement as well. What they're saying to the world is, in our relationship, we're not going to have that kind of social organization. No one's going to lead anyone in this. We're the same. That's why those kind of customs have so much meaning. But in this particular situation, in the original draft, as we watch it, what we see is Adam naming the woman in order to set about a social relationship that they will play out in their lives. Now, we're going to also watch in a singular event that's going to occur just one chapter later how that social relationship gets twisted. And we'll talk about that here in just a moment. But secondly, I want you to notice from Genesis chapter 2, it is the man also who is told in this relationship to leave and initiate a new household. Now, where do you see that? Well, we see that in Genesis chapter 2, verse 24. Here's what it says. This chapter ends with these words, and you've probably heard these many times. For this cause, a man shall leave his father and his mother and shall cleave to his wife, and they shall become one flesh. Now put this in your notes. To leave is to lead. That's what we're seeing here. The man is taking the initiative to make a break from his own family and to make something new happen in that initiative. In that initiative, he's leading and making a new, he's leaving and taking the leadership to make a new family. And here's the point in this passage, as we go to this great myth that has all kinds of subtle statements radiating out of it, it's important that we notice this because it's the man who's leaving, not the woman. He's taking the initiative to bring this new home about, not her. And by the way, we can fast forward and go down through the ages and come to our day again. And we see that same thing being played out all across our world. We see the woman wait for the man to initiate a new relationship. What does every woman wait for? She waits for these words. For the man to come and create some special moment and then get down on his knees and say these words, will you marry me? That chord goes all the way back to this moment. He's initiating. He's saying, I want to start something with you. I'm taking the leadership of this. Will you do this with me? And when she says, sure, I'll dance. Then he takes the lead and off they go. Now, having said that, you get a whisper of his leadership. But also having said, I wanted to also mention just one thing. You know, I've noticed in our world today, especially in the generation that's coming up, that you see this already being misshapen with the next generation. You see a lot of young men who don't initiate. You know, there needs to be initiation by young men encouraged with women as they're growing up. But a lot of times you see young men who sit and wait. And if you've got a young man in your home, you'll oftentimes find the girl calling the guy rather than the way it used to be, the guy calling the girl. You'll have the girl ask the guy out. In fact, there are more social situations in public and private schools today where the dances and the formals and everything, the girls are initiating towards the guys, not vice versa. I see young men in college where they run around in packs, but the young men don't have the courage to initiate to a young woman. And I'm telling you, when you can't leave and step out on your own and initiate an encounter, you're sacrificing part of your manhood. Young men need to be urged and encouraged that in relationships with the opposite sex, they initiate, not vice versa. Because if the woman starts initiating, then right from the very beginning, you've got a declaration being made on who leads and who responds. And it doesn't fit the pattern that we're reading about here when it says that it was the man who left and went and said, let's start a new relationship here. everybody understand that? Understand the importance of that kind of initiative because initiative, behind initiative is courage and behind courage is leadership. And the man is demonstrating that kind of leadership here at the end of chapter two to initiate this new social relationship called marriage. Now, having said that, we conclude the first two chapters of Genesis. Remember chapter one, the broad picture of creation? It's that wide angle lens. Chapter two, a closer, tied up focus on just the creation of the man and woman and how they relate to one another. And in that, we've seen all these different whispers of his leadership. Now we could have gone the opposite way if there were a group of women in here and talked about what is being whispered about her. And there's indeed a lot of things being said about her. But our focus is is unrolling the scrolls on the blueprints, the original blueprints of a man. So now we've finished and that's how they're to be organized. And now they're to go into the world with this new social order and they're to be fruitful and multiply and produce a godly heritage to fill the earth and subdue it and polish it and make it this incredible planet to the glory of God. That's the way it should have been. But now we come to chapter three. And in chapter three, we go into a real tight focus close up on a singular event that twists all that we just talked about and perverts it and distorts it and impacts the masculinity that right now you sit in your chair with. So we want to take a look at some observations from chapter three. So. A number of things we're going to look at this morning. First, I want you to notice this as you move into chapter 3. It'd be great if we had a Bible open where you could read fully the text with me. But for the purposes of a large group like this, we'll put it on the screen. But I want you to first notice that when you come to chapter 3, a temptation enters in to this new social arrangement. And the temptation seeks to corrupt and reverse God's original social and spiritual order. seeks to take all that I just told you and turn it on its head. Now, let's just read the account here together. Here's what it says. Now, the serpent was more crafty than any beast of the field which the Lord God had made. And he said to the woman, indeed, has God said, you shall not eat from any tree of the garden. Of course, that's not what he said. And the woman said rightly to the serpent, from the fruit of the trees of the garden, we may eat, but from the fruit of the tree which is in the middle of the garden, God has said, you shall not eat from it or touch it, lest you die. And the serpent said to the woman, you surely shall not die. For God knows that in the day you eat from it, your eyes will be opened and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. And when the woman saw that the tree was good for food and that it was a delight to the eyes and that that the tree was desirable to make one wise, she took from its fruit and ate And she gave also to her husband with her and he ate. Let's just leave this passage on the screen for just a moment and look at it. Because if you were just opening the Bible for the first time and reading the first couple of chapters, and you'd kind of gotten clear what was going on here. And you come here immediately. You're just kind of shocked at what just took place because everything you just learned got turned on its head. First of all, one of the first things that you think is strange is here's this serpent, a clear enemy of this first family, and yet he's he's engaging this woman and she's left there exposed in this engagement. And that doesn't seem right. I mean, one of the first things you want to know is, well, where's Adam in this? Why is he standing between these two? Especially when they begin to debate about the tree And he comes into that particular setting and gives a definitive answer. No, we're not going to do this. And yet, he doesn't seem to have shown any initiative in this at all. He's quiet. He's there, but he's quiet. And the woman engages this serpent around whether this commandment is in fact a good one or not. And then what you notice as she engages this serpent is she begins in kind of a strange way to take the lead in the relationship. And we'll see that at the very end of the passage. But the attack that unsettles her, by the way, is the same attack that is being, that is unsettling women even in our day. It's all around, look at the text. It's all around the issue of equality. the the knife, the dagger that the serpent sticks in her heart is this, God's holding back on you. He knows that if you eat this fruit, you'll be equal with him. There'll be a fair playing field. It won't be this over under kind of relationship anymore with him having it all and you being the inferior employee in this garden setting. No, you'll be like him. You'll be equal. You'll have the same power. You'll have your own freedom. You can determine your own destiny if you'll just eat. And so she listens. And then she's enticed. And then she gets engaged. And then she eats. Now that's enough to make you gasp. Except now that she's done that, At the end of the passage, she turns to her husband who is with her, and he follows. That's the word. He doesn't lead anymore. He follows, and he eats as well. And so this whole relationship of one who would lead and initiate and take charge and be the one who directs in the instruction of God's word and leads this new home to high spiritual ground. He's totally passive. She leads, and then he follows. And that takes place again and again and again in thousands of homes all across America, in thousands of relationships all across America every day. Person who's confused, trying to make sense of it, and men who stand around doing nothing. And then, after there is corruption, going, okay, guess that's the way y'all do it. And manhood is obliterated in those moments. Secondly, I want you to notice that after this takes place, after this sin is committed, and it is indeed a heinous crime, especially after God warned that if you do this, you're going to die. When God comes, notice that God holds Adam, not the woman accountable for this first sin. That's interesting. Here's what it says. Genesis chapter three. And they heard the sound of the Lord God walking in the garden. This is after the event in the cool of the day. And the man and the wife hid themselves from the presence of God among the trees of the garden. And of course, God knows exactly what has happened. And then God called, and here's the key word. See, remember we're at the mountain, the myth, where every phrase has a huge social meaning. And God called to who? The man. And he said, where are you? Now, you need to understand what he's calling the man to is to account. That's what he's calling him to. To account for this transgression, not because the woman started it, but because Adam was charged with it. It was he who failed, not her. And God's clearly putting the finger on the CEO of this new family who has now failed miserably. Just like when a sports team fails, you know, if you've gone like the Detroit Lions through a miserable season at the end of the season, who do you fire? The players? Well, you might fire a few of them, but primarily the one who gets the ax at the end of the season is who? Tell me guys. The coach. And you know, it'd be easy for the coach to step back and go, wait a minute. Wait a minute. Why are you firing me? I didn't play it down. It's the players who play. Well, sure it is. But it's the coach who determines how they play. And that's exactly what's occurring here. Oh yeah. Eve went off onto her own path, but the person who should have been in charge of All that, providing an environment of protection and safety and encouragement and understanding was negligent. And so God calls him to account here. And in this moment, the issue of leadership is not just whispered. You hear the issue of leadership shouted. And by the way, for us guys who are married, what event is occurring here will occur one day before God with every man here who's married. And God's going to say to you as the head of a social agency called the family, he's going to say, where were you? He'll ask that question and he won't blink. See? So it's very important that we understand what's taking place and the implications and the ramifications for this social order. And God says, I'm going to hold the man accountable. And you know, after working with families and marriages for years and years and years as a pastor, I can tell you one thing that's just really clear. As a man goes, so goes the family. That's just a real clear statement. It's just so easy to see that. And in our world today, in our nation today, what we see with children... And with the breakdown of the home, if you want to trace the root of that, it goes squarely to the foot of a man. Because as a man goes, so goes his family. Now, a third thing that we notice here is Adam's sin has an unacceptable passivity attached to it. Here's what Genesis 3, 11 and 12 says. And God says to the man, have you eaten from the tree I commanded you not to eat? Now, That's a very direct question, isn't it? And and I want you to think of the strongest, most virile man you can in your mind. If he was asked this very direct question, he he would step up to the line and say, yes, sir, I did it. But look at Adam. One of the first things you experience with this is that something has radically changed. He doesn't even sound manly. Have you eaten from the tree? And the man said, well, you know, the woman whom you gave me, you know, the one to be with me, she's the problem. She gave to me and I ate. Does that sound like a man to you? Or does that sound like a whimpering doofus? You know what you can write over that statement? Victim. Victim. I'm a victim. And any man who plays the victim card has torn up the manhood card. Because he doesn't have the to be a man, he ain't got it. And Adam doesn't have it here. All of a sudden, he looks small to us, boyish. We knew he should have stepped forward, but he didn't do it. He became passive. And asked, yes, why did he become passive? You know, I've asked that question over that text over and over again. The only thing I can think of, but when I think of it, it makes it even more heinous, the crime that he committed, is this. That they were in this garden. They were told not to eat of the fruit. He saw his wife entertaining with the enemy to eat this fruit, And in the selfishness and in the self-centeredness of his own heart, he went kind of like this. He thought, well, let's let her go ahead and eat it. And if she dies, God meant it, but I'm okay. (laughs) And if God doesn't have that power, then I'll get what I want. And she ate and she didn't die and he ate. And then all of a sudden, hell was unleashed. And he realized he had been fooled. But you know, if that's really what was going on in his heart, then he sinned long before she ate the fruit, right? And I think that's exactly what happened. Look at the fourth observation. Notice, Adam's curse is based on the reversal of God's original created order in Genesis 3.17. Eve's curse is based on her usurping God's created order, but Adam's curse is based on reversing God's created order. See, when they sinned, God cursed them. And here's what he said, Genesis 3:17. Then Adam said, now he's being cursed, because you've listened to the voice of your wife and have eaten from the tree of which I commanded you, saying, you shall not eat from it. Cursed is the ground because of you. In toil you shall eat of it all the days of your life. Life's gonna become hard for you, Adam. And you know why it's gonna become hard for you? Let me tell you what it's at the core of your sin. It's the first line of what I just said to you. What's the, what, what did he curse him for? Because he had eaten of the fruit? Was that the first thing he brought up? No. Look at it. He's cursed because you listened to the voice of your wife. Now, is that a put down on the woman? No. It's a put down on the fact that she was leading and he was following. That's the put down. He knew the information. His manliness should have called him forth to be a directional leader, an overall protector and guide of the noblest of manhood. But instead, he totally disregarded that calling over his life and listened rather than do what a real man does and that's initiate truth. And so he says, because you've done that, Adam, you've ceased to lead and you've betrayed the essence of masculinity. So curse you. That's what he did. And life forever changed. Fifth, I want you to notice Adam's sin unleashes what I call the destructive curse of male domination. Now, again, in the passage there's a place where the woman herself is cursed. And in the midst of the woman's curse, this statement is made. I want you to look at it. God says to the woman, woman, your desire shall be for your husband and he shall rule over you. That's an interesting phrase there. Because we think, well, why not he supposed to rule over in the beginning? Not like that. After this great fiasco where he failed her, Her desire is still going to be for a man, just like with all the abuse that many women suffer. By the way, one out of four women in America are abused by a man. More women go to the emergency room beat up by their husbands than all the rapes, muggings, and traffic accidents women get in every year combined. Do you know that? So here in this situation, you're thinking, well, he's supposed to rule. No, no, no. No, it's saying, even with all that, a woman's still going to desire a relationship with a man. But the man, now cursed, now having forsaken the essence of his masculinity, rather than lead his wife, he will dominate his wife or dominate women. The word there in the Hebrew doesn't speak to a noble leadership. It speaks to a harsh, oppressive dominating kind of leadership, a rule that women in every generation crowd against, a rule that women in every generation complain about, a rule that women in every generation are crushed under as their husbands or their boyfriends come home and say, do this and do that, don't bother me, get out of my way, you better listen to me kind of rule. And men can only be liberated from that when they find a new kind of leadership in the face of Jesus Christ. Sixth, I want you to notice another observation from Genesis three is that Adam takes this fruit and he dies. Here's what it said. Remember the, the statement that was made by God and the Lord God commanded the man. He said, listen, you can eat of any tree in this garden But from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, you shall not eat for in the day you eat of it, you shall surely die. Now he ate of it. And if you follow the text, of course, if you're thinking of death, just in physical terms, he ate the fruit and he didn't die. So either God was a liar or we've got the definition of death wrong. And I think it's, we've got the definition of death wrong. He ate and he died. And what died the most in Adam was his masculinity his true masculinity. He fell from that noble perch of what I call authentic manhood. And now he had a twisted masculinity that struggles with his purpose in life, like a lot of men do, that struggle with his relationship with women, like a lot of men do, that struggles with life in general, like a lot of men do. That's the death. And life becomes hard And the longer men who were meant to be noble leaders go through life without finally clearing all that mess up, life just simply becomes harder. Even if they become more successful, life just becomes harder because they can't figure it out. And they know deep down within there's something better for them, but they don't know what it is because it's found back at the mountain. And only until they go back to the mountain will they find it. That's what happened to Adam here. And notice on top of that, let me add to this, this judgment of death, look in your notes there. This judgment of death also extends to all those who come after Adam. He, not Eve, is charged with the fall of the human race. In fact, our depraved natures are due to Adam's sin. Remember that last wound in the suitcase, the heart wound? You know where that came from? your great, 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 great grandfather, Adam, because to him was charged the fall of the human race. And to him, death was imputed into his life. And then after it was imputed in his life, every, listen guys, everything he gave life to after him also died. So that Everything that proceeded out of his loins to the next generation and the next generation was infected with his death, his flawed humanity, his flawed masculinity in the case of men. It was passed on so that you're born with it. That's why one of the great pronouncements of scripture is an awful pronouncement. It says, in Adam all die. In Adam all die. By the way, that's also why Jesus Christ was born of a virgin, so that he wouldn't be infected with Adam's death. Here's what Romans 519 says. It says, through Adam's disobedience, everyone was made a sinner. And then finally, to finish up here this morning, I want you to notice one last thing. After all this fiasco is over, The man and the woman now are trying to regather their life, uh, make as much of it as they can. A moment occurs where Adam then renames his wife, which I think is a continued sign of his leadership even after the fall. In Genesis 3.20, after all this is over, it says this. Now the man called his wife's name Eve because she was the mother of all the living. Now up until this point, Her name was not Eve, it was woman. Okay? But now, after all that's taken place, he steps back. They're gonna go on with life, so he renames his wife. He calls her Eve, because she's gonna give life to the world, which, by the way, is one of her great purposes in life. So he calls her Eve. But by renaming his wife, it also reaffirms, even after the fall, that Adam is still called to lead, or the man is still called to lead. In other words, his sin didn't rescind his leadership calling. And that's important to understand. So even though we're flawed, even though we have problems, even though we're gonna have to struggle with ourselves and all the things in our suitcase, as men, we're still called. If we're going to find the essence of our masculinity, we're still called to be leaders. Every man is called to be a leader. Now we're going to define more specifically what that leadership is all about as we go through the next few weeks. But until a man understands that and embraces that and calls it his own, you know what he's going to be? A boy. A boy. Remember when Paul said, When I was a child, I thought as a child, I reasoned as a child. But when I became a man, I gave up childish ways. We're right there on the cusp of what that meant. See, when I was a boy, I thought like a boy for myself. I didn't embrace truth or have to. I didn't feel responsible for anybody. And when I got around people, especially women, I used them. But when I became a man... See, I embraced the essence of masculinity, which is leadership. And I saw myself as one responsible for, a provider of, a protector, a leader, a truth giver, a life giver. And I accepted that. And by accepting that, a lot of things are going to have to die in me. But I'm going to do that because I want to be noble. Now, we'll understand more about that in the next couple of weeks, but I want you to see that's what Genesis is telling us. So here's what we're going to do next week. We're going to take the observations that we learned about in Genesis 1, 2, and 3 with the first Adam. And then starting next couple of weeks, we're going to mix those with what the scripture calls the second Adam, who's called Jesus Christ. And we're going to take the second atom and compare him to the first atom, And we're going to press those two together. And what's going to fall out the bottom is your definition of manhood that you can take with you the rest of your life. Thank you for listening to the Dr. Robert Lewis Sermon Podcast. If you were encouraged by this message, please rate and review this podcast. In addition, share this with your friends and community. This podcast was produced by the team at Sound of a Rose. You can learn more about the team at soundofarose.com.